welcome to the Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast with your host, Buck Fantastic. During the 2021 legislative session, public education, teachers, and state workers were under attack by spiteful West Virginia legislators still peeved under the teacher strikes of 2018 and 2019. The Republican supermajority pushed through and passed several bills aimed at dismantling the public education system instead of fixing it and made it more difficult for teacher and public worker unions to operate. With me on this week's podcast is Teacher 2020 West Virginia Education Association Vice Presidential Candidate and West Virginia United Caucus Steering Committee member Nicole McCormick. Nicole gives insight into this year's legislative session and how enacted legislation is negatively impacting teachers and their unions. We also learn how and why teacher unions endorsed Workplace safety-hating coal baron Jim Justice for governor in 2016. We also talk about reversing course on the anti-teacher, anti-public education rhetoric gaining momentum in the West Virginia legislature. Join me, your host, Buck Fantastic, for another exciting episode of the Mothman and the Bible Belt podcast. Let's get schooled. Let's talk about what happened this session to teachers. Thanks to the West Virginia legislature, Senate Bill 11, it makes it unlawful, it already is, for public workers to strike or participate in a worker stoppage. Punishments include losing one's job and having one's pay withheld. The bill's main target, teachers. What happened? (laughs) Well, what happened is they... um we made them mad because we successfully struck in 2018 and 2019. So they tried to shove through this omnibus bill in 2019 uh, during the regular session. And we struck for two days and we killed it. But our illustrious governor being who he is and his, you know, ilk decided that it was a great idea to do a special session during the summer. And during that they passed house bill 206, which had, It it opened the door for charter schools and um, there were a lot of like negative things in that legislation to do with us. And um, it just kind of, it was like the first blow, I feel like, because we felt like winners, you know, we were, we were on top of the world there for a little while. And then it was like, we kind of went from hero to zero real quick. So that's what it's about. Um, You know, it was already quote unquote illegal to strike, but the question always is who are they going to replace us with? I mean, if you if you look, I mean, just yesterday, Harrison County said we have such a shortage of professional staff and substitute and, you know, and everything else that we're going to end school uh, half a day every Friday from now on. So that all the things that need to be done because teachers are giving up their planning periods, which we legally have, um, can happen. So, yeah, things aren't great. And a lot of that's due to the Republican strong held legislature. Senate Bill 14 also passed this year, weakens teacher certification requirements. Have you seen a lot of unqualified teachers get hired as a result? I haven't yet. Black regulations that, because now this isn't the first, this isn't the first time that something like this has happened. 
last year, didn't they pass another one that allows someone with who doesn't have a teaching certificate but has some sort of bachelor's or master's in X related field to teach? Yeah, they, I mean, they've like tried to relax the laws around teaching um, because they're trying to uh, mitigate a problem, which is that people are leaving the profession instead of addressing the root causes. So like in West Virginia, you have to have a bachelor's degree to even substitute. Like you can't even substitute teach with that one, which, you know, in Virginia, if I'm not mistaken, you only have to have like a GED to sub. And whenever that we leave our classrooms, most of the time it's more work to, <laughs> to leave for a sub than it is just to show up sick. And so we try to make sure that educational things happen while we're gone. Well, you need someone who has a certain amount of training to be able to make that happen. And now if you're putting people in charge of the classroom that have no education degree, I mean, you're just asking for trouble. And I mean, that's just a that's a cycle that's going to keep eating away at public education because when you have unqualified people, they're not going to be able to educate children as, as, as well as qualified people can. And those unqualified people are cheaper than qualified people. So as they push people that actually have legitimate degrees out the door to save money um, or continue to keep class sizes large and pay low and working conditions bad, you know, it's just this continual cycle. It's just going to get worse and worse. And um, and they're enabling that. Governor Justice specifically was the person that was like, oh, we need to make sure that anyone with a bachelor's degree can teach. That's not how teaching works. You can't be a good teacher just because you have a degree in basket weaving. How did Jim Justice get the endorsements of the West Virginia AFT and the Education Association? Because at the time, whenever that, and this is in no way me agreeing with or excusing, but at the time, whenever the justice ran for the first time, Bill Cole was his big opponent and um, Bill Cole was Senate president. And I actually had like a meeting or so with Bill and and he was very openly anti-public education, anti-public teacher. Um, you know, he's he's a business owner in Mercer County, which is where that I lived for the majority of my life. And I just recently moved to Greenberg County. And um, so it was kind of like what it always is, the lesser of two evils. Now, that's not to say that Jeff Kessler wouldn't have been a great governor, because I think he would have. I think that he was a good candidate. But instead of our unions actually stepping out and saying, this person may not win, but we support them, they're always trying to back who they think is the horse that has the best chance, instead of being you know, what labor unions should be which is really focused on making sure that you're fighting for the common good for everyone and not just who you think you can play politics best with. Did labor even consider Charlotte Pratt? I, I don't think so. I, I mean, I spoke with Charlotte um, this last go round and I was on the state PAC steering committee for WVEA. And I specifically pushed for us to do more of an endorsement, more work with her. And it just kind of fell upon deaf ears, um, which has has happened a lot, unfortunately, in, in what I've tried to do to push for candidates. House Bill 2009 exempts withholding union dues from state workers' paychecks. How has this affected teachers and state workers or has that gone into effect yet? Oh, yeah, it's gone into effect. It went into the fiscal year turns over in July. And because that you can no longer have your dues taking out by payroll, um, that meant that you had to re-sign up through what we call e-dues. And so WVEA and AFT, and I'm sure SSPA, I'm just not as aware of their inner workings, 
um, we're all pushing for people to re-sign up for e-dues. But here's the thing. Uh, number one, our unions haven't really done anything like the union leadership. So people are going, why do I want to pay my dues to you? And that payroll protection, it's a nice name for just a union busting tactic. Like that's, that's all it is. And um, so instead of uh, actually standing up and speaking out for employees for our safety during COVID or anything like that, that they could have done or running organizing trainings, they didn't. So whenever that they're asking people, they're begging them to sign up for e-dues, people are going, why? So membership has significantly dropped. I mean, we have lost paid positions in the union, which of course benefit members because that we've lost so much dues money. And I mean, that's not me trying to air dirty laundry. It's just, it's just the fact of the matter. So it means that the Republican led supermajority has got part of what they wanted. There's less union members now. House bill 2778 gives tax breaks to folks whose kids are already in private schools or are being homeschooled. What's up with that? There is this big giant push and has been for about the past 30 years for privatization of our public schools. It's just kind of like private prisons. Like it's not a good idea um, to, to do a public service, something that's supposed to be helping a portion of the population and putting it in the hands. I mean, even the power grid in Texas, like there's there's tons and tons of examples. But so there's been this push by the ultra wealthy, by um, the Koch brothers, by Alec, you know, their, the, um, their legislative exchange council, uh, where that they just copy and paste bills. And sometimes they'll even forget and leave the state it was in before <laughs> in the name of the new state. But this, this push is, is really to keep people poor and ignorant. That's all it is, because whenever you keep people poor and ignorant, then you can pay them whatever you want. You can treat them however you want, and they are forced to accept slave wages and dangerous working conditions for you. And that's all part of what they're doing with education. I mean, public education is a public good. It is a societal building tool, and it should never be privatized. Public dollars should not go to private education. I don't have an issue with private schools in general, but if people are going to go to private schools then two things need to happen. The workers of those schools need to be treated better because most private school teachers are paid far less than their counterparts in the public schools, which of course they have far less um, students. They have far smaller class sizes, which is a benefit. So they're kind of weighing the pros and cons, especially parochial schools. They're the ones that really underpay their staff. Um, but we need to, if you're going to have private schools, they should not be using public money the end because they're not going to be regulated the same and you are stealing from families that simply cannot afford to go to private school and i know people will say stuff like well my kid's stuck in this public school and their wealthy neighbor can go to private school when has anyone ever said that public school shouldn't be the best school in the neighborhood you we should be funding and listening to the people working in those schools funding those students like their education like that their lives depend upon it because they do. You can look at some of the first states like in California and see how poorly it's went, especially poor black and brown neighborhoods, immigrant neighborhoods. They're the ones that they attack first. Is there a push to shrink public schools classroom sizes or because it's like 20, it's 20 to 25, depending on your kid, kindergarten all the way up to high school, right? Right. So in kindergarten, and I can't remember the exact pre-K numbers, but they're still too high. They're all high by 
you know, quite a bit. Um, in kindergarten, you can legally have um, up to 23 and numbers uh, 21, 22 and 23 are extra pay. You have to have an aide in the room. If you go over 23, you have to have two certified teachers in the room. But again, you know, you're talking about most classrooms are not large. Uh, in first and second grade, you cannot go over 25, which is probably about 10 kids too many, honestly. In those grades, there should be an aide in every classroom and there should only be about 15 children. I mean, that is the foundational grades. This is when the children learn to read. And, um, you know, what we're not what we because we as the teachers are just as much a victim as anyone else because we've been drug into this and told what we have to do and we've lost all of our autonomy. But, you know, kindergarten, I'm, I'm 36. And when I went to kindergarten, it was half a day and it was very much play based. I didn't learn to read till about Christmas, maybe a little after of my first grade year. And it was not a big deal. I am a successfully educated woman. I have a master's degree. I function just fine. And I didn't learn to read until then. Um, now, once that you get to grades three through six, you can have up to 28 and you get paid for number 26, 27 and 28. And then after that, there are no class caps. I mean, I've had like 56 students in a choir group before because there's no class caps when you get to sixth grade for performance ensembles either. And we have no choice over that. They can cram as many as they want to in there. How do you wrangle all those kids? <laughs> you can. It's dangerous. I mean, between simple things like, you know, breathing on each other, even in a non-pandemic time and fire marshal codes and everything else, there is no way for you to actually educate those children. You're just babysitting and you're in your babysitting in a very hazardous condition. So it's not OK. Um, it becomes a dumping ground. And the only way is if you have a good administrator that will let you choose who's in that class based upon like if it's a performance ensemble, that you actually get to audition those kids and make sure that not only can they meet the talent requirements more or less, but they can also meet the behavioral requirements like that they can function in that type of environment. I know that teachers had a really difficult year this year and last because, well, not last year, the state house was open for the most part um, when it came to public forums, but for the most part, y'all weren't given a public forum, were you, for many of no. these bills? No. Um, and really, we felt like that we were shut out of the Capitol last legislative session, like between just the crisis that was now, I, I, whenever we if we have a moment, I'll talk about what is the gift of COVID as far as public education. But whenever that you are trying to teach children in a distance setting and in person simultaneously and create new curriculum and learn new technology and do all these things all at the same time for no extra pay with no extra planning time. You know, it's like everybody was in kind of crisis mode. So the legislature was like, oh, boy, <laughs> they're not around. And so they just did whatever they wanted. Um, and and the results were not good. I mean, the charter board uh, is all appointed and there it's there is not a single educator on that board. They're all like privatizers. And it, for the life of me, whenever that they did the public um, survey about charter schools, you know, 88% of respondents said no. They said, no, we don't want charter schools. We don't want voucher programs. We want our public schools to be bolstered. We want, I mean, public schools are the heart of the community. And we really need to go back instead of all this consolidation crap 
to these small schools, to smaller classrooms, so that these little communities have that. They have their homecoming parades. They have their grandparents' days. It is okay to have 150 kids in a school that's pre-K through six. It is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It is not wasteful. It is more beneficial to the students to have a small setting where that everyone knows everyone. It cuts down on behavior issues. And we, I mean, and I know that firsthand because of the things that happened during the pandemic. When half of my kids were there, I got through twice the amount of material that I would have gotten through with all 25 of them there. And I had no behavior issues, none. Because instead of a kid getting bored and getting upset and acting out, I could immediately go address them because I only had 10 or 12 kids in the class. And I could be like, hey, let me help you with this. I see you're struggling or someone else that's like really excelling. I could go ahead and push them ahead because there's one of me and 12 kids instead of one of me and 25 or 30 or 60, depending on what grade you teach and what it is. But you still have some kids sitting on a bus for an hour or two going to and from the school. That's a sad thing. Yeah. And it's not okay. I mean, they're, they're babies. Like even children that are teenagers, they need to be able to start school later, have shorter school days and not be, you know, being transported for two hours out of their day. Like that is, that's not healthy. That's ridiculous. What's your thoughts on the virtual charter schools being permitted in the state? Um, I have lots of not nice words about it. I mean, there is, there is no definitive data anywhere past however many years that virtuals have been being pushed that says that children really learn, really retain in that setting. The majority of children don't get what they need. I mean, wasn't that what parents were screaming? They're like, put our kids back in school. They can't learn in this virtual setting. And then it's like, we're going to have virtual schools. I mean, again, it's a way for somebody's buddy to make money. Like it, it is not about the kids at all. And it never has been because if it was, they would talk to the people that are actually educated and responsible for taking care of these kids and making sure that they learn the things that they need to learn. And they never ask us never for anything. Two teacher dads recently filed a lawsuit to stop charter schools from opening without input of local voters. Do y'all think this will stop charter schools from launching? We don't have any at the moment, do we? We don't. Uh, no, we don't have any currently. I, I, I am grateful that they did that and I applaud the effort, but we might have the numbers of people, but they always have the money. And unfortunately, so many people can be convinced through someone throwing money at a situation and ads and things like that, when that there's actually no basis in reality. I mean, we, we see that every day in America. So I, I don't think it'll stop it, but I wish it would. I mean, I wish that we could actually pursue legal means to be able to do that, but I really think it's going to have to be a multi um, front approach on how to kill privatization in the state of West Virginia. Our teachers within the AFT and, West Virginia Education Association dealing with these setbacks that took place this year from the West Virginia legislature. They're, they're not. Um, I, this is my 13th year and I have served in leadership capacities in the union for eight years, I think. And I, where I'm a music teacher, I see everyone. I see every single adult in the building whether that they are a service personnel or an educate a teacher, we're all educators. We all contribute to the education of a child. Um, and I have never in my life 
seen people so beat down, so overwhelmed and just so crushed. And, and I, and it's like, I hate to say that because I'm the eternal optimist and that I'm always like, there's, there's more, we can do more. Well, look how powerful we are. Don't you remember what this felt like? But it's people are struggling to just survive. And so whenever that anything else comes from the legislature, it's like you can tell that people wish that they were ignorant to it because it, it is so painful to try to deal with it and digest it. And, you know, now coming up, we know that there's going to be a tax on West Virginia State Code 18, Section 18 and 18A, which is everything to do with public education and everything to do with um, school employee rights. And so it's like there's another fight coming down the line and people are tired and they're angry and they're frustrated and they're looking for a way out. Why didn't teachers strike this year? Because of COVID, um, because they felt like that they were just trying to help their kids. Like they're, one of the things that I really that really bothers me about teacher culture is because that we're about 75 to 80 percent female, you know, we're looked at as care providers. And we're paid very poorly and we're treated very poorly because of that, because we're women, you know, we could go on all day about that. Um, and so because of that, we are socialized to feel guilt for not being what children need, for not being there for your coworkers, for not being there for your administrator, for letting parents down. I mean, the list goes on and on, all this kind of self-imposed guilt that is bolstered by society. And so teachers were like, oh, my gosh, you know, we've been out and I don't feel like I went through the amount of material that I normally would have. And if they do this standardized test, they're going to fail miserably because I haven't been able to give them what I normally would. So they've like they convinced themselves that um, the only thing they could do is just take it. How are teachers dealing with massless schools with COVID-19 being spread like Wi-Fi right now? <laughs> Um, they're dying, uh, and people's family members are dying and I'm in Fayette County and we actually have a mask mandate and we've had one since the beginning of the year. And so kudos to our school board for doing that. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm one person and I see every single child and every single adult in the building and I'm vaccinated. And I thought Fayette County schools did a really good job about offering the vaccine to any adult that wanted them. We currently, um, parents can opt in for their kids to be randomly COVID tested. Uh, you know, of course, we have the mask mandate. We're still doing quite a bit of the social distancing. We're doing extra cleaning, things like that. Um, but there are counties where it's just kind of a free for all. Or, you know, you look at places like Arizona or North Carolina and you see what people are saying. And it's like every other day a staff member has died or the family member of a staff member. And I think, too, something that I need to mention is I don't think that people that don't work in the schools do not realize how many grandparents and great grandparents are raising children. They're raising school age children and they are the most susceptible to serious complications and death. Who who's going to raise those kids? I mean, when great grandma is the only one in the family that is capable of raising a six year old. There is nobody. I adopted a foster baby that was a, it's biologically related to my husband and there was no one else. And, you know, we were able to take her, but there are so many kids that there is nobody to take them. And they're either left in a bad situation 
or they get sent off to somebody in a different state or something like that. I mean, it's bad. And people need to realize that it goes beyond just, well, I don't want my kid to wear a mask. Well, whose meemaw are you killing? Because you didn't want your kid to wear a mask. Did many teachers catch COVID-19 after returning to the classroom? Uh, I can, I mean, I work at a very small school and between the, the teachers and their family members, I can think of quite a few that have been out. And of course, you, you have to take your own days. We only get, um, what is it, 11 sick days a year and four personal days that you can take, you know, without cause, but you have to like get them ahead of time. We have no subs. No, and that means like no substitute bus drivers, no substitute custodians, no substitute cooks, no substitute uh, secretaries, no substitute nurses, and no substitute teachers. And so we have no one right now. And so whenever you would have a school that might have normally five or six subs that would come, we may have one. So if you have to miss 10 days because you have COVID, there's nobody to cover your class. So people are giving up their planning periods and doing all this stuff that is only detrimental to the students and detrimental to themselves. Are teachers remotely able to social distance in a classroom with 20 to 25 plus students? No. Um, if you have a, a, a traditional size classroom, I would say that you can you can probably social distance with about 12 to 15 kids, depending on like what other equipment do you have in your room? Like, do you have computers that are actually setting up? Do you have pianos and instruments? Like, what is it? But whenever that you have 25 kids, like, I think people forget. They're like, oh, I went to school once. They forget what size these classrooms are. Like, they are not big. They're a little bit bigger than, like, probably a couple of bedrooms put together. There's no way to social distance. Like, you're lucky if you can get two to three feet between kids. When the vaccine got rolled out, Teachers weren't up on the priority list. Why was that? Why would we be? I mean, we're expendable, right? We're just babysitters. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm not trying to be very defeatist here, but it's the longer that I'm in this is the more I realize like that they don't care. I mean, how many years have we been doing active shooter drills and that we have this, you know, epidemic of school shootings and it's like, oh, well, you, you're going to sacrifice yourself for the kids. Just put those kindergartners in the closet and try to distract the gunman. And if you die, it's all right as long as the kids don't die. Which, I mean, really, you know, whenever, whenever Sandy Hook happened and nothing changed, I knew nothing would ever want to change. How many of y'all's students didn't have internet access to do the virtual learning last year and earlier this year? I mean, it depends on where you're at, but we all know what most West Virginia counties look like. And we know that people live back in hollers and stuff and they, they just, the internet does not run there. It, it literally stops. And so they tried to do things like having connectivity centers, like where that you could come hook up on the Wi-Fi, like out in the parking lot of your kid's school. Um, I had a friend joke one time. He said, we should just make sure everybody can access Wi-Fi at the local Dollar General. I mean, because they're everywhere. But I mean, it's kind of the truth. But at the same time, how can you really do homework sitting in your car? Like, so there were, there were a lot of kids, you know, we tried to do things like paper packets, um, you know, individual tutoring, but if the people, if the adults that are caring for those children do not have access to a vehicle, you know, you're just kind of dead in the water unless that you use buses. 
And even then, it's like it, it was such a logistical nightmare. So I know that there had to be children that fell through the cracks, which, again, it's like I know teachers were really trying to keep that from happening because they value so much these little kids. How has the West Virginia Education Association membership consistently elected Dale Lee five times as president? Wasn't he one of the labor leaders telling striking teachers to go home in 2018, 2019 and more or less telling them to just be calm and elect Democrats this year? More Democrats in 2022 this year? Yeah, of course it was. I think that, you know, and I know Dale, like because I, he was from Mercer County. And I mean, his daughter was my secretary whenever I was president there. <laughs> I think that a lot of union members have been taught that what a union is, is an insurance company. They haven't been actually educated to what the union is, that the union is not Dale. Dale could ask us all to do something. And unless people really want to do it, it isn't going to happen. Like, and he also can't do things on his own. So it was, it, it's incredibly disheartening that they, amended the constitution so that he could run. I mean, by the time that his term is up, him and Wayne Spangler and several of the people in the executive committee, you know, they're going to be, have been in seats of power for 15 years. Like being out of the classroom for just a few years, things change so rapidly. You cannot relate to what's going on. Being out of the classroom for 15 me years means that you're clueless as to what people really need. But that, that is my biggest issue, I think, with um, how things are currently done with our unions is that people have been taught that you get information from Charleston, you send information to Charleston, and you're good little girls and boys, and you don't cause too much ruckus, and you uh, convince people to vote blue no matter who, and it's all going to be awesome. And there isn't this like, this is what it means to organize. And this is how we really look at political candidates to see if they really align with our issues or not, no matter what letters next to their name. Um, and more important than that, like, I mean, their Republicans were in the majority both times we struck. So it's not necessarily who's in power. It is what are your people? How are they empowered to make changes for themselves? And that is something that none of the unions have done. They haven't educated people on how to do that. Democrats, when they were in the majority, they froze teacher and state workers pay for years. It was big time when Joe Manchin was governor. Oh, they yeah. continued on with Earl Ray Tomlin. Why weren't teachers, you know, willing to go and strike then? I, I think it goes back to that. I think that people were uneducated and ignorant to what it really means to be a union. I mean, if you look at unions that are really fighting unions, you look at the Chicago Teachers Union, you look at the United Teachers of Los Angeles, they have really become fighting unions. And they don't just fight for pay and benefits. They fight for drug rehabilitation programs for their students and their families. They fight for food access. They fight for um, you know, all of these things that are for the common good. And they have also continually worked on this is what a union is. This is how we grow power. So, yeah, I mean, Democrats 
are just as bad as Republicans in a lot of aspects. And I mean, like, you know, yeah, they've been our friends for a little while. And I'll use that in quotations. And I have some friends that identify as Democrats that I really do consider friends that are in elected positions. But at the same time, like there always kind of has to be a divide there. Whenever that you are a union organizer, you can never really be buddy buddy with a politician because they are beholden to lots of people, not just, you know, what you feel is right. And if you look at states like uh, California that are deeply blue, their Democrats are beholden to the billionaires. So, I mean, what's different between that and the Republicans here that are beholden to the business owners and the gym justices of the world? Like, it's kind of always a, a crapshoot on um, and it's because that we have so much dark money in politics and the way that our campaign finance laws are, are written do not benefit the common person actually running for office successfully. Do you think teachers are opening their eyes to third parties after past two sessions? I mean, some definitely are. Um, and then some, I mean, one, one of the great things, I guess the great is an okay word to use. Um, maybe not great. One of the very successful things that Republicans have been able to do is to brand themselves as the moral party. You know, we are the party of morality and we're the party of the Christian faith. And, you know, and so it's like, sometimes I'll hear teachers that identify as conservative and they'll say things that I'm thinking, okay, well, uh, Bernie and I said that, <laughs> like, you know, things about like, well, why is it the, you know, the top 1% has this and all the rest of us have nothing, or, uh, you know, I can't drink my water, or we've been on a boil water advisory for 12 years, or we don't have sewage in the town. I mean, those are real issues. And so in, in my experience, third party candidates have been more focused on the real issues. They just haven't broke through that barrier of a two-party system. I mean, you know, I've seen uh, Republicans and Democrats be able to focus on real issues before. But my hope is that people can look more at the candidate and not their party, because we really need people that actually care and view us as people and not just as, you know, a cog in the big machine that if it breaks, it can just be replaced. What nudged you to run for vice president of the Education Association in 2020? I stepped in as vice president during the 2018 strike. And I, I just, I just spoke about like the truth. I spoke about how that we were living off of $15 a day for a family of six after we paid our bills. And whenever I said that to this audience, like it was very embarrassing, but I felt like it needed to be said. I mean, a room of hundreds fulls of, uh, uh, there was hundreds of education employees are all going, mm-hmm, me too. And I'm like, oh my God, like I'm not broken. <laughs> it's the system. Like it's not me. And so I, I then went to the labor notes conference in Chicago and I, I just, I just talked about what we did and, and my experience, like there was no show to be put on. Like it was just the truth. And I got approached um, by some organizers from Seattle and Portland and Oakland. And so I spent the next several months, like taking long weekends to travel and speak. And, um, and while that I was in Seattle, uh, one of the organizers said, you know, have you thought about running for state leadership? And I was like, no, I have kids and you have to live at that Capitol. And it's like, I just, I couldn't do that. And he was like, well, why does that position have to be like that? 
I was like, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if 75 to 80% of the teachers are women and we have kids, like why shouldn't the position be catered to us? We, uh, we are the best people to represent us. So I talked to caucus members and, and Jay O'Neill, who I consider a dear friend. And um, I was like, hey, Jay, I really want to run for leadership. I really want to run for president. But, you know, the countless conversations that me and my husband have had, we're afraid that it just isn't workable with very small children. I mean, I have four children. They are currently 10, 8, 5 and 5. I mean, so they were very, very little um, during the first strike. And Jay said, well, if you want to run, why don't we run a slate of candidates from the caucus and see where the caucus thinks that what position we should run for? And so I was like, I'm just as smart as the people that are currently representing us. I have good experiences of what that I believe. I feel like that I'm a good listener and I feel like that I can speak well enough to speak for us. So I want to run. Now, I mean, I lost by 15 votes, but I'm glad I ran. What caused teachers to strike in 2018? PEIA, um, Public Employees Insurance Agency. So all West Virginia state employees have that insurance unless your your spouse uh, has access to a different one. And so PEIA decided that they were going to get their money off the backs of us because, you know, there's never been progressive revenue set aside. It's still not fixed. It's still an issue. Um, and they were going to take like they were going to take these tiers. So the more money you made was supposed to be the more money that you paid and the less money you made, the less money you paid for your health insurance. And they were going to collapse the tiers. So the people on top paid less, the people on the bottom paid more and the middle kind of stuck to the middle. And they were going to take your whole household income. So excuse me. So if you had like a teenage son that was working at the gas station, they were going to take his like three or four hundred dollars a month to put into your income, too. And um, they were going to cut coverage and increase co-pays and do all of these things. And people were like, oh, my God, like my pay is so bad. I'm already struggling. And now you're going to jack my health care costs up. So it started with that. And then it became about more. You know, it became like there was a charter school bill at that point in time, too. And so we were able to not only get a 5% pay increase for all public employees, not just teachers, not just school workers, like all public employees got that raise, uh, whether it be cops, state road workers, you know, and those people didn't strike with us, but they were there in solidarity. And that's, I mean, that's what it's about, right? I mean, I think that's super powerful. And we were able to get a freeze on PEIA, which is now ding, the timer's up. So it's like, it's time that they're going to start jacking the prices up again. Why aren't West Virginia teachers getting yearly cost of living adjustments? And why aren't retired teachers getting that? I mean, my God, you retire in 1996 and you're still making that kind of a salary. That's ridiculous. I mean, I, I heard a man at, I think it was a, a forum, a public forum in Beckley. And he said, I retired from the state road in 1996 and I have not had a cost of living increase. He said, I had to move back in with my son. I have to get my food from local food pantries at churches and I have to ration my medicine. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's a disabled worker that served our state. And that's how you treat him. I mean, at that point in time, when we struck the head cook, the head cook, the, the woman, because I've never seen a, a male head cook. So I'm just going to be that way. Uh, the the woman in charge of the kitchen and ordering the food and making sure everything's prepared correctly and everything's safe and the other women in the kitchen they were making twenty thousand dollars a year in Raleigh County 
there is no like cost of living increase. There, there is nothing keeping up with inflation. And so it's like anytime that you get this little bump in pay, you're not even making it up to the point you should be. And it's just like this continual pullback. I think that Jay told me one time he had figured it up um, because he's originally from Texas, but he's moved around and worked in several other, several other states. And he was saying that like in the four or five years that he had taught, that he, that he actually made less like at that point in time, then he did his first year. But if you took into account inflation and rising healthcare costs, and I'm like, that is ridiculous. You have all those extra years of experience. You want to keep uh, experienced people in the classroom and you're, you know, you're never raising their wages. What's keeping the union teachers complacent about this? I think that they're overwhelmed. I think that they feel um, let down and that they're just trying to survive. And I mean, I don't want it to be that way. You know, I want people to realize their worth and I want people to fight not only for themselves, but for our communities and for our kids and their families. But it's like I said, I mean, this idea of business unionism, that the union is an insurance company, you better have it if you get in trouble. Um, not like this is a, a mechanism for good, which is what I feel like that unions should be. They should empower workers to make things better in general in their community and their society, not just their own workplace. And I think that's part of it, a, a big part of it. I think people, COVID has done a lot of people in, a lot of people are, they've got one foot out the door and uh, they're looking around for help and they don't see anybody. What went on behind the scenes of the historic 2018 teacher strike? What do you mean? <laughs> well, I heard a little birdie told me that because of it, I heard that Christine Campbell was one of the people also telling teachers to go home, that people were nudging her or saying something to her about if she ran, it wasn't going to happen. They were going to get rid of her or something. Is there any truth to that? Or? Well, I don't know because I'm not an AFT member. Um, I do know that when I've met Christine Campbell, a couple of times like she was she was friendlier than my own president like she actually listened to me and talked to me but i mean she was very obviously pushed out and i don't know the story behind that like how that that happened but i mean i do know that um you know this was a rank and file everyday person movement this did not come from the top down leadership jumped uh, on board because they knew they were going to get run over. Like they, they, <laughs> they were not like trying to um, do anything except derail the train. Uh, you know, you quit talking about strikes. That ain't going to happen. Um, you know, y'all just need to go back. Like this looks bad. Nobody's going to support y'all. I mean, and we had the community support and we, we still do. We still do. Like, I know that there's always like a vocal few that makes you feel like that nobody cares and you're a loser, but how many people do you know if you ask them, tell me about your favorite teacher? They got one. They might have more than one. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like their first teacher. And it's probably not going to be a college professor. It might be, but it's going to be somebody they had in public school that's probably still living and teaching in the same area. I mean, so it's like the teachers aren't the bad guy or the bus drivers or the cooks. But um, it it made me open my eyes like to realize that I could trust my own voice, what a union really should be. 
and that um, leadership was more interested in playing politics than actually fighting for us. So what's the plan for teachers during the 2022 legislative session to try to undo the damage done this year or prevent more damage? Well, I think they're coming for us, um, not only because they have, you know, more aggressively every year, but because there's already been these forums around West Virginia State Code 18 and 18A. 18 is like everything to do with pu public school, uh, how, how it's funded, how school boards are made up, um, how long a kid can be on a bus at what age, how many kids can be in a class. You know, and then 18A is more to do with like employee rights, like due process and that you have a duty free lunch. Like, doesn't everybody deserve to be able to eat a lunch? My God, like you can't even go to the bathroom as a teacher without having somebody cover your class. Like there are no bathroom breaks, like uh, having planning time. I mean, can if you had to plan for a meeting and let's say that it was an hour long meeting, I'm sure that your boss would give you more than 40 minutes on one day to plan for that meeting. And yet we're asking teachers who teach eight periods a day to only have 40 minutes to plan for all seven hours of instruction. Like it is not sustainable. Like people, the public education is working currently on unpaid labor. It, it's on knowing that people are going to take their work home and they're going to take it on the weekends and they're going to take away time from their family. I think I got a little off topic there, but um, like 18A protects us. I mean, we're a right to work state and we have very few protections. But if you look at Southern states, it is bad. I mean, in Arizona, you can have 40 first graders in a classroom and you have no guaranteed planning time. And the qualifications for teachers are like nil. You you have to be with your kids every single minute of the day. You do not have a duty free lunch. Like you cannot go to the bathroom, cannot make a phone call. Like um, it's bad. And that's what they're coming for. I mean, because Josh Higginbotham had this um, meeting. I mean, and how old is that man? Like, why is it that there is no educators on the education committee? They're, they're all either business owners or they're the pawns of Alec. Like, the, well, I just, I don't, I, I'm just, it blows my mind. And I know it shouldn't at this point in time, but so that's, that's what they're coming for. And teachers better pre prepare to fight because if it, if we lose it, we will never get it back. Has teacher unions considered riding on top of striking? Uh, well, not official leadership. I mean, my God, they were like, that's how they get things done in Europe. <laughs> Well, I mean, really, can, can we please have a general strike for public education? Like, um, no, I mean, official leadership. I don't even know if they believe in striking. Like, I, I, I'm still kind of in awe that they stood up there and played the part. Um, I, I do think that educators need to be having real conversations with parents and community members about what is the state of our schools? What do they need to help their kids? And what it would look like if we had no rights. I mean, currently, the way that one of the things that passed during that summer, during, during 2019, is the hiring rubric is so skewed. 
you truly can have a person with no education degree, no alternative set certification, get a job over a teacher with 10 years and a master's degree with perfect evaluations. It's legal. And I mean, why would you want that person teaching your kids over a veteran educator that actually has good evaluations that has done their job? How can the West Virginia legislature and the state and county school boards improve education for teachers and students? We need to start by making sure that we are making the field of education attractive and not in a superficial way, like actually a, a functional thing that you can stay in and retire in. Like I thought I was going to retire from being a teacher and how we, because that's how you get people to, to join onto the profession. You pay them well. You give them autonomy. You give them not just a seat at the table. You let them own that table and talk about how, what do we need to educate these students? I have never in, in my entire time in the hundreds of people I have worked with. I have never had a single teacher not care about every single kid, even the kids who are always getting in trouble about that kid being successful or not. Like they, they care about that. And the, and the fact is, is these kids fall through the cracks because we don't have the resources to do what we need to do for them, to do what they deserve. So, I mean, we really need to bring educators to the table. And yes, parents and community members and students need to be brought too. But whenever that you're inside a school and you see how that works, like, I'll tell you, the very first time I had a student with matted hair and rotten teeth and she couldn't stay awake and she was a kindergartner. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, like, what what do I do? Like, how, how am I supposed to teach her when she's obviously miserable and can't stay awake and that she's hungry and dirty and I had no resources to help her? I tried. I mean, I, tr I tried like talking to the guidance counselor. I tried talking to her classroom teacher and they're like, honey, there's nothing we can do. And it's not like them being irresponsible. We've already talked to the people we're supposed to talk to, but we just don't have those things in place that we need. And part of that is, I mean, we need parenting classes for parents. We need um, assistance for sobering up, for getting out from under drugs. We need parents to be able to have a, a healthy, safe place to live. They need to have living wages for God's sake. I mean, it is not right that a parent's having to work two and three minimum wage jobs and they can't ever come to anything their kid has and they can't ever help them with homework because they just they're trying to survive. So I really I mean, it's it's a big question. It is. But I really feel like actually listening to the people in the schools would be a great first step because, yeah, we do deserve more in pay. I mean, my God, the amount of debt that you have to go into to be a, a highly certified educator and the fact that student loan forgiveness seems like it's never going to happen. Like it is impossible to live on the wages that we have comfortably. How are teachers dealing with the opioid epidemic in the state in their classrooms? Um, my first year teaching uh, was in 2009. And at that point in time, I taught at Princeton Primary, which is a really big primary school. It's only K through two, has about 600 kids. And at that point in time, I would say in my average class, maybe one to two kids lived with someone other than a biological parent. And now I just assume that no one lives with a biological parent. Um, and I don't know. I, I could I could guess 
that probably about 85 to 90 percent of my students do not live with a biological parent <laughs> in some in some. Yeah, it's 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 a lot. Um, I don't think people realize that. And um, with that, if they're still in an environment that's like that or they're being pulled in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, that does not help them at all. It doesn't help them emotionally. It doesn't help them physically, socially, academically. They really suffer. Um, because of that, because of what situation they're in. So, you know, we've tried to do things like um, make sure that they have access to clean clothes. Um, like in Fayette County, there are clinics near all the schools so children can get free health care. Uh, they have a toothache or something like that. It can be looked at and dealt with. Um, so we've like tried to increase the resources. It's just it's just, it's a lot. And a lot of these grandparents, they've already raised their kids. And here they are in their 80s raising six-year-olds. Like that should not be what they're responsible for. And so it's, it's like almost impossible for them to be what that kid needs. Not because they don't want to, but just because they're an 80-year-old raising a six-year-old. Like I'm 36 and raising five-year-olds. I'm like, oh my God, I still got to do this for like another 13 years. <laughs> like it's a lot and I'm young. So it's, it's been, um, we're, we're trying, I mean, we're trying to do what we can with what we have. Cause I mean, those babies are our future. What's the future of public education look like in West Virginia? There is so much potential. And if there's been a gift of COVID, it has shown us that we can have shorter school days, that we can provide food all year long. And over the weekends, we can provide medical care. We can, um, have smaller class sizes. We can uh, make sure that children are getting the things that they need at home too, like like whether it be a device or um, extra manipulatives or masks or clothing or whatever it is. Like that has been the gift of COVID. It has been that people outside of education have seen more of like the cracks in society like that people need help and also that we are able to do all these things. We're just not like the, they have thrown money at the, the school systems all across this nation money that tells me it's always there. Like it's, it's always there. So why aren't we funding our schools like that? Why aren't we reopening small community schools? Why aren't we making 12 and 15 size like kids in a classroom, the norm, the accepted norm, because it should be. I mean, I, I just cannot stress enough. I could get through twice the amount of material in two days. Like it was magical because that I had half the kids. I wasn't dealing with behavior issues and I could be one on one with them. And I just I don't think people understand that they're like, eh, just stack them deep and teach them cheap. <laughs> so like there's a lot of potential there. It's just we need to be listened to um, because people are leaving and that's the worst part of it. Right. I mean, it's going to be crapping on our kids and uh, they don't deserve that. And we don't want to do that to them, but we also, we're not martyrs for people. Public education, teachers and state workers are under attack. Instead of making it easier to outsource the problem, let's work together to fix our inept public education system. It's going to take parents, students, teachers, school boards, unions, and policymakers working collaboratively to make this happen.
It may take a strike or two or not allow riots better fine-tune the public education system to meet the educational needs of future generations of West Virginians, but something's got to give. When public teachers and state workers don't get yearly cost of living adjustments and their health insurance premiums go up or benefits get slashed, these folks are essentially taking a pay cut. Rent, food, and utility costs go up for everyone. No one is immune. Now is the time for everyone to join a union and reverse course on anti-worker and anti-teacher laws being passed in West Virginia and beyond. If you're unhappy with contract negotiations, leadership, weak legislative priorities, and find the union's PAC endorsements to be insulting, you can always move to replace everyone in your union, letting these things happen and paint a different world for you and your union brothers and sisters. Complacency is feeding poverty, drug addiction, and broken homes in West Virginia. It's time to raise the bar, not lower. I'd like to thank my guest, Nicole McCormick, for giving listeners insight into how bad legislation and union leadership is negatively impacting teachers and unions. The Mothman and the Bible Belt podcast is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Please check out our website at mothmanandthebiblebelt.com for updates on where you can stream the podcast and also for links to our social media. Like, follow, it's all good. Thanks for listening.